Hi, this is Kalia Colston. And I'm Dylan Bird. And this is the podcast of Triple R's The Grapevine, a weekly current affairs radio show putting local issues in a global context. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoy the podcast. And if you have any feedback or would like to connect, hit us up via the Triple R website. Brazil has a new president-elect. Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva, also known as Lula, narrowly beat populist right-winger Jair Bolsonaro in the runoff last week. The result was surprisingly close, and there were fears that Bolsonaro would refuse to accept the result, but it seems the transition of power is in motion. To explain more about what this election means for the country and the future of its politics, we're joined on the line by Dr Deborah Barros Leal Farias, Senior Lecturer in International Relations at University of New South Wales. Deborah, welcome to Triple R. Thank you for having me. I'm excited. <laughs> yeah, we're very excited to, to have you. And so what have you made of, uh, I suppose, a week it's been since the results came in? Well, I think the first um, thing that comes to my mind particularly is just relief um, that it's um, over and done with and that it, we were not... Because, I mean, there was, there was just so much fear that what would happen in Brazil um, especially if Lula won, which was what all the polls were saying, is that Bolsonaro would do really like a Trump, you know, a Trumpism, a way of saying, you know, it was stolen and not to accept the, the, the results and then just complete mayhem, you know, happening. And so far, you know, within this week, it just seems that things are, I mean, there's still protests going on in Brazil, but the president has pretty much, I mean, things are already moving, right? The transition has already begun formally. Um, the power structures are not backing up any sort of coup. So, so far, so good, I would say, very cautiously. And, I mean, does Brazil have a history of, of coups particularly, Deborah? Yeah, sorry? Um, with regards to that transition of power, has it been an issue in Brazil historically? Not really. Like, this would actually be the first time um, that we've had, I mean, since we've, you know, re- re-democratized in the mid-'80s, where there's been this sort of tension of what's actually going to happen. So that's also why it makes it for Brazilians just like, okay, this is something different. You know, I think it's it's the equivalent. I, I think for most Australians, like, I make the parallels with um, with Trump because it helps them really to understand what Brazil is going through. In fact, many people calling Bolsonaro tropical Trump. For Australians, I think the closest that I would get is that it's almost as if Bolsonaro, it's it's like as if you guys had had Pauline Hansen in power for four years. Mm. If you like Pauline Hansen, you'd be very happy. But if you don't, you would be very happy with the change. Absolutely, you would. And uh, I mean, <laughs> as as you, you mentioned, Bolsonaro did flag that he may not accept the results, um, you know, in the in the recent past. And, and he sought to delegitimise the voting system, which, you know, again, there's parallels there with what Trump did in 2020. Why do you think he, he has accepted it so far and hasn't sought to, to launch some kind of coup? I mean, is it, is it just the case that he realises he doesn't really have the power to do so or...? Um, I think it's a combination of things. Now, one of the things that really made, that put him in a difficult position to really be going full-out Trumpian and say the election was stolen is that within, you know, even 24 hours that the election result came out, I think even within the, the first six hours that, you know, the results came in, that Lula had won, you had big political players in Brazil like leaders of um, the, like the House, you know, the, the House, uh, 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 what's the name, like Speaker of the House and the Speaker of the Senate, people who carry a lot, a lot of domestic power, recognizing and talking about democracy and talking about recognizing the results. Um, you have the Supreme Court also going and saying, look, this is about democracy, which are really the, the code, right, to say the election result is out and it is what it is. And even externally, because you had within, I think, 38 minutes of the official, you know, result coming out, um, President Biden tweeted, um, you know, congratulations to President-elect Lula. And basically what followed was just in the, in, you know, dozens and dozens of world leaders, of especially major um, countries that really matter to Brazil and countries that are really powerful, saying that they recognize Lula's victory. So you have the sense of internally big, powerful players 
not really interested in contesting and sort of saying the king is dead, long live, you know, the king, and saying this is already trying to fit in and say, how can I benefit politically or how can I put myself in a positive position with the upcoming um, powers to be? Um, and also no indication that really the armed forces were really going to back up the whole process. So there are people in the armed forces, which Bolsonaro really, really introduced this military presence in his um, in his government. There are people that you see as individuals who are very much still with Bolsonaro, but it was never a unified position. Mm. And once you have these big, you know, Brazil's biggest trade trading partners, um, saying, you know, no, we're not going to back up any of this, you know, nonsense. I think he found himself without any really big, strong allies. So that said, basically, it doesn't mean that things can't happen. They can. I mean, Brazil is like a, you know, I keep saying to Brazil, it's a lot more fun than House of Cards. It's a lot more fun than, <laughs> you know, anything you watch. It's just, it's like every season has a new, you know, dramatic characters, and it's just, uh, you, you don't get bored. Well, you know, it's a good um, way of putting it because um, enter then um, from, from side, side stage um, Lula, uh, and, I mean, yeah. it'd be good to focus on, on um, him as president-elect, what is it that he's done in, in this past week? And I, I guess what would you expect to come from a presidency um, of Lula? Um, so there's a couple of things. One of the things is that from a domestic perspective, the country, I mean, the, the budget that he's getting is just really disastrous. This government left Brazil in a really difficult situation. So He's going to have to do a lot of um, political maneuvering to get support, to be able to change the budget, to be able to invest in areas that got him elected, so especially with regards to, to, to poverty and human development and all of that. But um, I think what the world is really going to see that is very clear, it's already started, is a deep, deep concern and a complete shift um, to Brazil with, the, with environmental issues. Mm. Because Bolsonaro, like, he saw the Amazon as something to be protected, but it was to be protected from outsiders. So he always looked at the Amazon from a very nationalistic, this is my territory, NGOs. Um, he actually called NGOs the cancer, like a cancer, and he wanted to get rid of it, because essentially he saw in this sort of paranoid conspiracy that foreign powers wanted to take over the Amazon. It was never about environment. Um and basically, he wanted to make money out of it. And I think with this new government, they're going back to where Brazil was towards the end of the 2000s and early 2010s, where Brazil really positioned itself as an environmental leader. So the, the COP that's going on right now in Egypt, um, Brazil's presence there is expected already. They, they've already moved on from Bolsonaro. And now they're already articulating, you know, Brazil within this, this new view that is very much towards, you know, recognizing climate change, it's human-caused, and Brazil does have an important role to play. Yeah. Speaking with Dr. Deborah barros Leal Farias, Senior Lecturer in International Relations at University of New South Wales, all about the recent election of Lula as the incoming president in Brazil. And uh, Lula has served as president of Brazil before, between 2003 and, and 2010. And over that time, I understand, had a staggeringly high approval rating. But um, after he left office, he, he spent time in prison as well. What, what kind of leader do you imagine he will be the second time? around? Um, most of what appears to be the case is that he's really going to be focusing on uniting the country. That seems to be was one of the big part of the campaigns to really have this broad coalition for democracy. So you have folks that are, you know, strong traditionals in Brazil's even um, center-right, people who are very much, you know, liberal capitalists and all that. But say, look, I might disagree with Lula in many things, but we agree with democracy. We agree with um, a rational way of, of, of governing that is not on the far right. So he's going to have, and I mean, that's, it, it, it seems really to be the first steps that he's taking, and the transition team is not, you know, biting all of these uh, clickbaits or provocations that are coming from Bolsonaro's team and just saying, look, we're here to unite the country and we're here to, you know, bring bring the country again to 
something that is not as divisive as a far-right government, which is divisive everywhere. Yeah. And in terms of the skills that he brings, sort of having served as president before and, and in the context, I suppose, of, of Brazil potentially playing, you know, more, more of a role on the, on the world stage. And as you mentioned, he's already called um, for uh, sort of, you know, rainforest nations to, to rally for, um, for conservation efforts at, at COP27. So he's, you know, very much getting on the front foot. Uh, internationally speaking, is he someone who has been effective at establishing and, and building relationships diplomatically? Oh, absolutely. I mean, when Obama was president, there was a meeting um, that Lula had with Obama, and Obama basically saying, this is the man. Like, this is the most popular man in the world, you know. So Lula is, I think, even people who don't like him recognize that he is extremely charismatic. And I think he really excels in, I mean, whether it's a good way to do foreign policy or not, but he really sort of self-identifies, like, his image and his story as sort of the leadership for um, what Brazil is expected to to look like. Um, I I think in this sense he knows that he has... I'll I'll just give you a little tidbit of how interesting these things are. I took, on the day of the the result, I took an Uber, and I was, you know, just on the phone and and doing things in Portuguese, speaking to people, giving interviews. And at the end, I I, I, I apologized to my Uber driver and said, I'm so sorry that I was rude. I didn't even um, talk to you, but I'm from Brazil and et cetera. And I told him Lula won. And he said, Lula won? And I said, yes. This man was like banging his hand on the steering (laughs) wheel happy. And I asked, where are you from? And he says, I'm from Somalia. So I was thinking, my God, I'm in Australia and this man from Somalia, who'd never set foot in Brazil, knew yeah. who Lula was and was ecstatic with the victory. So this is the kind of thing that you, you can't buy, you can't manufacture. So I think just him coming back, it has uh, provoked already all of these very, um, you know, positive, really positive um, reactions, because I think many people do have very good memories of what he said and what he stood for. Now, whether that is just demagoguery, you know, and and just telling people what they want to hear, that's a a valid question you can ask for anyone who's a good communicator. But ultimately, you know, Brazil's economy, like when you look at the stock exchange, when you look at um, currency exchange, we've already improved in one week. And wow. the man's not even president. <laughs> so, you know, it's... Um, I can hear it in your voice. There's a, there's a lot more to to be focused on that, that might might change and improve in, in Brazil with this change. What what I mean, what are the sorts of senses around Lula and, and the team around him to address any, you know, question marks or anything around, around corruption or how they run the budget and all those sorts of things? Is that even in frame at the moment, Deborah? Um, that is, but I think it's not so much at the forefront right now. I think one of the biggest challenges that we have with the very hardcore people that are... So so there's people who voted for Bolsonaro mostly because they're suspicious of Lula, right? So Lula did go to jail. He was accused of corruption. And then the, there's the two sides of the story. One, which is, well... The, the you know, a lot of things happen. Lula should be in jail. He's just not in jail because, you know, the Supreme Court, he has friends there and his allies sort of let him out. On the other hand, you have people saying, well, no, it's because of the judge who was, you know, literally judging him in this case was from the get-go biased against him, didn't have proper evidence, um, and in fact politically benefited from putting Lula in jail because once Lula was in jail and he couldn't run, um, Bolsonaro actually asked this judge to be his minister of justice. And the stories go that he was actually supposed to be appointed to be the, the a Supreme Court justice. So you can imagine that, you know, there's a lot of um, people who are suspicious of Lula sort of getting away with crime, you know, and corrupt, you know, corruption pays. So I think this government is going to have to pay a lot of attention to make sure that they're dispelling that and also to make sure that they're showing people that all of the fake news that came around during the election period 
are in fact fake news. People saying that Lula was going to close all churches, that he made pact with Satan, that every school, um, you know, would have unisex bathrooms because of gender ideology. It's it's just insane when you look at the you know the, the level, the, the number of things that people actually believe. Like Brazil is going to become a communist country, as if we were, you know during the, like the middle of the Cold War. It's, um, it's pretty insane. So I think the government is probably going to have to just try to bring a normal politics again, you know, yeah. just boring politics. That's all I want in life. Boring can be, can be very good. And, and, oh, um, yes. <laughs> Bolsonaro very sort of effectively fanned the flames of, of the culture wars. You mentioned, you know, a couple of issues around gender identity and, and so on, which, you know, he really used to try to, um, you know, uh, raise fears, I suppose, around what could happen to the country going forward. And, um, I mean, what happens for, for Bolsonaro now? Does he still seek to kind of stoke that division? Does he go quietly? What's his role going to be going forward? Um, okay, so I, I can say I can say what happened this you know in the last seven days. So Bolsonaro took almost forty-eight hours to actually um, speak. Once the results came out, he came out, and he's the the, the two times that he sort of made um, you know he's come publicly to talk. He's made sort of ambiguous comments. So on the one hand, he hasn't gone full Trump and said I don't recognize. But he also didn't say, I recognize and I would like to congratulate Um, President-elect. He spoke a couple of days ago, and his base now is confused because there's people protesting, you know, calling for a coup, calling for the armed forces intervention, um, blocking highways. And basically he said, you know, yes, it's, it's normal and it's fair to be protesting, but open up the highways. People have the right to come and go. And what you're having now, it, it seems at least so far, is that... Some people are so radical that they don't need Bolsonaro anymore to continue the, the radicalization. Because Bolsonaro sort of made a, 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 you know, his last communication was sort of toned down. It wasn't inflaming anything. Um, and you see people, you know, I have saw online and people saying, oh, we don't need Bolsonaro or Bolsonaro betrayed us because he told us we should give our life for our freedom, et cetera, and now he's not doing anything, so F him. Mm. Um, So we're yet to see where this is going to lead. Um, There's a lot of talk that once now also January 1st comes in and he's no longer president, he doesn't have a lot of the legal protections that he has right now as a president. And some will say, well, it's only a matter of time before, you know, all of the lawsuits that are against him actually move forward and that he might actually, him, be going to jail, him and his children be going to jail. So, you know, I I say, as I said, if you're bored, follow Brazilian politics because it's always exciting. Um, You know, every time I wake up here, it's the end of the day in Brazil and I'm just following up on all the memes and all of the, oh, my God, I can't believe this person said this and that. Um, it's, it's my, it's, you know, it's a, it's a telenovela <laughs> with full of drama. <laughs> I think you've drawn a whole bunch of people into that, Deborah. <laughs> uh, absolutely. And may politics become more boring in the future. I'm not, I'm not sure if we should hope for that, but anyway, it's, um, it sounds like a really interesting time for Brazil at the moment. It's been so great picking your brains this morning. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Absolute pleasure. Dr. Deborah Barros Liao Faria, Senior Lecturer in International Relations over at University of New South Wales, giving us a really in depth insight into what's happened with the election over in Brazil over the past week. Triple R on FM, digital, online, on demand, podcasts, and via the app. This year's Global Climate Talks, COP27, has begun. It's hosted this year by Egypt and being held in Sharm el-Sheikh. And to talk about what might result from a fortnight of negotiations, Cam Walker from Friends of the Earth is with us. And uh, Cam, it's good to have you there. Good morning. Yeah, good morning. And so what's on the agenda this year for COP27? Oh, gosh. So... um it's going to be a big one, and we know uh, that, uh, you know, the clock is certainly ticking when it comes to dealing with climate change. And before each COP, the World Meteorological Organisation, the WMO, releases a report um, on the state of the climate, and that really underscores just how desperate things are getting. The last eight years are the hottest on record. They also note that the fact that we're having all these La Nina events is actually... Um, 
masking the heating so it, it's not as warm as it would be otherwise. The average overall increase in temperature uh, globally is now 1.15 degrees Celsius. Sea levels are rising twice as fast as they were 30 years ago, etc., etc. So it really does underscore that we really need to be getting on with strengthening our commitments uh, to reduce emissions at the national level. But there will be, for the first time, also a, a deep and probably very contentious conversation around the concept of loss and damage. Yeah, that's right. And where do you, you imagine that conversation is going to go, Cam? Because as I understand, there's a commitment to hold discussions about how some of the, you know, the poorest and, and the nations most impacted by climate change can be, uh, I suppose, compensated for the damages that they're, they're incurring and to allow them to sort of adapt, I suppose, as best as possible. Do you imagine there may be some kind of commitment coming out of COP27? You have to hope so. So what happens at the start of the COP is like there's a pre-meeting where they haggle over the agenda. So it was discussed last night and loss and damage is now formally on the agenda for the first time. It was actually blocked last year at COP26 in Glasgow by some of the richer countries. So it's really fantastic. It's formally on the table. While financing for uh, so-called developing countries has, has long been part of the conversation the deeper uh, political conversation around loss and damage has always been at the fringes. So this is the first time it will actually be in the formal agenda. They're going to seek to have a really deep conversation. That will link back to, of course, the financial commitments for mitigation and adaptation that are already there and have been there for years. Uh, but for the first time, there will be this actual deep philosophical conversation about the fact that some countries, like Australia, are causing the problem and other countries like Tuvalu or Kiribati or Fiji that aren't causing much global warming are the ones that are experiencing the sharp end um, of, of the climate change impacts. And Africa will be centre stage at this because Africa is already being so impacted by obvious climate change. And so, I mean, how important is the host country to the success of the COP or to the agenda of the COP? Because you just mentioned that, uh, you know, the, the talks last year in Glasgow, uh, loss and damage wasn't on the agenda. The UK were the host there. Now it's Egypt. Uh, so it, it does matter, does it, Cam, who hosts these kinds of talks for what gets discussed? It does, but also this is a gathering of almost 200 countries, so it's really those countries and what they bring to bear. Um, the wealthy people, as always, you know, have the greatest say, and so people operate as often regional blocks. So there's the alliance of small island nations, for instance, and the African nations often work together, and the, the, the group of seven, uh, the large industrial nations, often work together. So it is politics on a mass scale. There's something like 40,000 delegates there. You know, there's a lot at play. There's a lot of moving parts but um i think the, if the host is saying we want to push to set a deep agenda then that really helps so it's good that um egypt is pushing quite hard there's a lot of conversation of course around um the lack of freedom uh, in Egypt around civil society and activism. They've got something like 60,000 political prisoners. There's already been a, a joint statement put out by many of the civil society groups, including Friends of the Earth, uh, demanding uh, that people who who are in prison simply for being trade unionists and simply for being activists, environmental activists, should be released. There's a whole lot of concern around uh, the fact that, for instance, Coca-Cola is one of the sponsors um, of this uh, negotiations and, and the very famous um, activist good. Greta Thunberg has said she's not even going to go. So there's a lot of you know detail that is difficult, but... Um, I do take heart from the fact that loss and damage is now finally formally on the agenda for the first time. And Australia's going to these talks, obviously, with the new government. Um, Anthony Albanese is not going. We're represented by, um, by Chris Bowen over there. But what role do you imagine Australia sort of can and, and could play? Because we haven't, you know, been a particularly constructive member of climate talks in the past. Do you think there'll be sort of much more impetus on Australia to, to try to do more and, and I suppose rally for, for greater change than we've seen, you know, at least over the past decade? 
Absolutely. So for the last decade, we've been an embarrassment, an absolute just shameful embarrassment in these negotiations. You might remember that our emissions reduction target was 26 to 28 per cent under the previous government. Uh, the, the new government, ALP, have increased that to 43 per cent. So it's kind of putting us back in the game. I was heartened to see that Australia spoke in favour of loss and damage going onto the agenda at this meeting. Uh, we know that Australia is interested in co-hosting COP31 which is in a couple of years' time, possibly in conjunction with a number of Pacific nations, and that's a really interesting uh, kind of concept. Um, Australia has also indicated that it will support some proposals from the Pacific to change global maritime law so that if nations are lost to sea level rise, they don't lose access to their exclusive economic zone. So it's great that we're back in the game, but of course, you know, we have this dilemma of we're exporting vast volumes of fossil fuels overseas and we're still moving pretty slowly on our domestic energy transition. So there's no doubt there'll be a lot of pressure on Australia to do more. Ken Walker's with us from Friends of the Earth talking COP27, which kicked off yesterday in Egypt. And, yeah, just going to some of those points there, I mean, this, these, these talks are happening in a you know, global energy crisis, particularly with regards to price. Do you, do you think that might influence what gets discussed as well, Cam, or what some of the uh, solutions, if we get those out of the talks, what they might be? Yes. So obviously with the Russian invasion of Ukraine, uh, that's done two things. One is kind of send a mad scramble to access fossil fuels from other sources, but it's also really uh, provided huge impetus to get on with the transition to renewable energy. So there's a a positive trend and a negative trend that have come out of that because of the the massive increase in gas prices in particular in Europe. Um, I noticed that the head of the UK delegation is already uh, attempting to get the COP to denounce Russia's invasion. So this will be a very political one. We know that um, Vladimir Putin won't be attending the COP. Traditionally, Russia, you know, has been one of the villains in these processes. They're very... um strong on further development of fossil fuels. So this will be a particularly political um, one in that the backdrop, of course, is the invasion and then what that has done to energy prices, fossil fuel prices, particularly in Europe. And I suppose with with all of these talks, um, the extent to which uh, constructive things come out of them is, is, is contingent on the representatives who are there and the governments that are in place, in particular sort of countries around the world. We're going to be talking later in the show about the recent election in in Brazil, but there's been a commitment from their new president, uh, Lula, to cut deforestation in the Amazon by 89% over the next decade and a commitment to sort of um, try to to, to rally, I suppose, rainforest countries together at COP27 to advocate for, for broader changes as well. And, I mean, we have, you know, in the US, President Biden, who's made climate change a particular priority, but with the midterms coming up, there's concerns about what the future political climate of that country might look like going forward. In terms of the, the political landscape, Cam, do you think there there is a real potential, I suppose, for positive change to come, given the leaders who were there this time around? I think there is, um, and it's good that Australia is going to be on the, the winning team, so to speak, this time, rather than being a laggard. So we're, you know, we're in with the, the, the decent countries that are pushing forward. I think if we step back, there is this kind of deeper conversation around the future of multilateralism, that is, countries getting together to resolve global issues. We know that climate change as a global issue. It requires, if we're actually going to solve it, a global response. So we need an inherently international response to climate change and there is a lot of attack from you know the right-wing populists so Jair Bolsonaro in Brazil who recently lost to Lula uh, you know he was one of those people Trump certainly was of that school Hungary under its current leadership is of that school Um, so there's this constant tension in the global realm of do you do just a unilateralism do you just do what you want to do, or do you have multilateralism? And multilateralism inherently brings compromise. Um, it's often deeply flawed. You know, you can you could write several books about how flawed the UN is, but at the same time, we do need these global agreements. We do need these contracts and these treaties to allow us as a global community to collaborate. They're all imperfect, but I'd argue they're much better than having nothing at all. So, um, 
having leaders come in, and it's great that Biden will be there. Um, it's great uh, that I've noticed Germany is already indicating that they're going to bring some really interesting things to the conference. Leadership by the nations is really essential. And, uh, you know, it's disappointing that our, our Prime Minister won't be there, but it does appear that we've got a pretty solid team of senior ministers who will be attending. And I'm hoping Australia really marks itself, acquits itself well uh, in terms of showing serious and sustained leadership over the next couple of weeks. And I mean, it's interesting since the the Glasgow talks last year, you know, what came out of that? Many things did, but a, a big one was a, a focus on one and a half degrees. And that's the, you know, the Paris Agreement says keeping warming to two degrees Celsius or in striving towards one and a half degrees. So this one and a half degrees focus came out of Glasgow. That uh, UN report, that emissions gap report that was released last week made a lot of people very glum that the sort of window or the opportunity to keep one and a half degrees on the table is narrowing. Uh, I mean, what's your sense there about the one and a half degrees focus of these talks, Cam? Look, it's really hard to find a climate scientist who says it's possible to hold warming to 1.5 degrees. I think we're well past that point by now. Um, there was a report released recently that said that if you put together all the commitments from all the nations uh, that are involved in the COPs, we're heading to well beyond two degrees of warming. But we just can't fathom that sort of future. Look at what's happening in Australia. Look at the fires. Look at the floods with a little bit over one degrees of warming. Like, that's just terrain we cannot go into. So while um, it's a dream that's really hard to believe it can come true, it is essential that we keep looking back at 1.5 because if we say, oh, well, that's too hard, let's hold it to two, then it will just continue. It, it becomes like the pressure val- release valve that just allows us to keep on polluting. And it's absolutely essential. It's absolutely clear. All the science says we just have to stop investing in new fossil fuels and we need a radical uh, reduction in emissions. Um, so 1.5 is a little bit like a fairy tale now, but it's essential that we keep talking about it. Triple R on FM, digital, online, on demand, podcasts and via the app. Coming up in just a moment, going to be having a chat about a really brilliant new podcast um, produced by somebody's daughter, a theatre company, and with women who have spent time in prison here in Melbourne. To get a flavour of it, though, I'm going to play just the first minute or so of the podcast, which explains the concept pretty well, and then we're going to be catching up with a couple of people behind the podcast um, just after. And I'm here with Taj. Hey, Kath, how are you, mate? And Kerry. Kerry, how are you? Yeah, I'm good, love. How are you? I'm good. And the reason we're hosting this podcast is because we've all spent time out at Dame Phyllis Frost Centre, maximum security prison in Victoria, down under. And while we're in there, we worked with a wonderful group called Somebody's Daughter Theatre Company. It was cool. So every year, Somebody's Daughter Theatre and us women of Dame Phyllis Frost, we all come together to devise a play and to create visual art. We get to invite our friends and families to see the play and the exhibition. Dignitaries come as well for over three nights. Every night, someone can come and see you perform. There are matinee performances for the other women who we live with, and they yell and cheer their mates on. It's really exciting stuff. When do you perform in their cat? 2008, 2009. God, that's going back. What about you, Kerry? From 2016 through to 2018. Oh, yeah, that's right. And we performed together 2016 and 17. Yeah, it was fun. But COVID put the kibosh on live performances last year, so they recorded a radio play instead. Miss, it appears we've hit some turbulence just before the stage four lockdown. What you're about to hear is a play based on the true life stories of the prison drama group Women, 11 actors all up from eight different cultures. Their stories have been dramatised to protect their identity. Miss, it appears we've hit some turbulence. Follows the also familiar story and journey of Matilda. Yes, so that is a story behind the brand new podcast miss it appears we've been un- uh, miss it appears we've hit some turbulence i should say from somebody's daughter theater company and women who have spent time in the dame phyllis frost center a women's prison here in victoria to talk more about it we're joined by somebody's daughter artistic director karen harper and kath one of the writers and performers of this production welcome to you both thank you thank you and congratulations 
Thank I know. You, thank you. It sounds brilliant, and I've had that song in my head for the past few days since I listened to the podcast. So thanks for that earworm. It's a great song. <laughs> it absolutely it? is. Yeah. yeah. Um, so Karen, first up, tell us a bit more about Somebody's Daughter. Well, Somebody's Daughter Theatre began way, way back in 1980 around about there, 1980-81, when a play was taken in by the artistic director, Maud Clark, and two others from the Victorian College of the Arts to then Fairly Women's Prison. And um, it was basically after doing that little play, women asked whether they could do some drama. So very much the 80s were about doing new devised work in the prison and then on the outside some of these women were being released and that's when Somebody's Daughter Theatre was officially born because, you know, you can be a number of labels um, but everybody is somebody's daughter. So that's how that started. And the 90s was very much about women inside and outside and putting on new live productions. And then in 2000 we started to work with young people, marginalised young people. And so Somebody's Daughter has been going for... We're only very young, but we've been going for about 40 years now. Gee, I mean, I'd love to hear how how it's just remained and remained such a force, but what brought you to it, Kath? Yeah, why did you choose Um, to get involved with a theatre company? It was a very easy choice. It was hard to do what we had to do because it was... I've never... never, had never done anything like it. But the choice, um, the, the, the opportunity that it gave me was to tap into something that I hadn't experienced since I was a child. And that was reading and writing. And that was what I really, I think, have gained the most from that is... And I've gone on to do bigger and better things. But, yeah, it was a no-brainer to be... I was a a creative person. um, But then to be allowed to participate in in that um, was why I got involved. Yeah. Yeah, stayed involved. Fantastic. And so how does it all begin when you sit down and say, all right, we're going to put something on, we're going to put on a play. And if you haven't sort of written and, and been using that part of your brain, I suppose, for, for mm. a long time, where do, you, where do you start? Well, you start with um, a group of us sitting around having cups of tea and coffee and getting to know each other and special treats. <laughs> um, and then we talk and we talk and we talk about, you know, our lives and things that have happened to us, not not our crimes or that sort of stuff. I think that, yeah, it just it comes from words that become sentences that become a play Look, and a song. Play is know. actually the central thing. There's a lot of drama. Oh, play. Sorry. It's not a play. The, I mean, in yeah. the end, it's coming to the circle and so people... Every year there's a new group and sometimes there's new people that come along and sometimes there's other people that come for their second, third, fourth, fifth performance because they're, they're there for a longer time. And so it's, it's, there's no... We don't go in with any preconceptions about what the themes are going to be for each year. And so people come together, they just tell... They bring themselves. They, I guess it's about people feeling safe and, and starting to feel that they can just be in that circle and whatever they have to offer is in a very gentle and safe space and we play and we laugh and we tell stories, as Cass says, and we do improvisations and then we, we feed that back and devise it and it builds and grows from there. It's very organic. Yeah. yeah. And, I mean, it as you said, it's been around for decades now. Is What is it that keeps it strong because it, it, it has a very strong purpose? Well, you know, I think... And, look, it, it has been incredibly difficult for so many arts companies during this time, but we've always struggled in terms of, you know, maintaining the work um, in terms of um, funding-wise, but the bedrock of the work has always been the work in the prison. That's where we've... That's our starting point. Um, and so that's something that we are incredibly passionate about. And I do feel there's... We are very fortunate to have... Um, where We collaborate with um, uh, the Department of Justice in Victoria. And, you know, there's, there's, um, there's just a, a mutual understanding, I guess, that uh, we go in and uh, we, we, we are there to create uh, the best work that we possibly can and we believe that that is very possible in this environment. There's a lot of very creative people. Um, but what we do for an outside audience is we invite people in. So every year up to COVID, there were about five or 600 people coming in for three nights to see, to witness the work and the, the amazing visual art exhibition. So I guess it's sort of, it's uh, yes, it maintains itself because it's uh, it's something that is I guess very important, and it, it is it's a voice that 
you don't hear a lot of and enough of. Yeah. What was that like for you, Kath? I suppose it's one thing to, to sit with, you know, people you, you spent some time with and brainstorm some ideas and eventually work that up into some kind of production after, you know, quite a, quite a long and intense period of time, I imagine. But then when you get to actually perform it in, in front of people, what, what was that like? It was horrifying. <laughs> horrifying, terrifying. But it was much, it was very, very fulfilling at the end when, you you know, you're proud and people are telling you what a great job you've done and all this sort of stuff and it's very, very, very good for low self-esteem when mm. people, to hear that, to hear how proud people and families come in and, and see you and hear your story and they don't know that, you know, people, people some people see a, a prisoner as a prisoner who has done something wrong, not as a, a person or a woman with family and and stuff. Um, yeah, so... Did I answer that question? Yeah. Well, I was going to add, I mean, it sounds like it, 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 those performances could be very emotional for everybody in they the are. room. They are. And, and the company is... And another thing that keeps, I think, the people coming... The women are full, that run the show and, and the men are full of love and kindness. You know, you don't get into trouble for anything, you know, and, and most of us have been in trouble for most of our lives. Mm. So, yeah, that, that's that's... For me, that's a, a big part of it. It's not the accolades. It's the love and kindness <laughs> that I love. <laughs> There's also some, some great humour that runs through this production, Miss. Um, it appears we have hit some turbulence. And uh, towards the end of the first episode, I think it's someone who says it went from being locked up to being locked down. And, of course, that was the impetus to, to making a podcast version of this production. So what was that like when you realised you wouldn't be able to perform it in front of people? How did you then transfer the whole project into a, a podcast form? Oh, my goodness. Well, I mean, the year, as everybody knows, we just nobody knew what was happening from one minute to the next. And we started the year thinking, well, you know, it might be possible that we can have a little showing and it could be, you know, there might be 50 people or there might be 60 or 80 or whatever. And then, or well, we could maybe do something where there might be a few, we can get the women to see the show. Oh, no, maybe <laughs> it just kept going back. It was very Monty Python-esque, you know. It was like just editing your ideas. It's like, oh. You know, like, ah. Uh, and then we thought, okay, we'll do a live radio play instead and we'll yeah. be able to sort of show that. In the end, it came down to we were meant to be, um, we were meant to be uh, go, uh, recording on the Monday and we were told on the Friday, this is it, this is your day. And we went, oh, my goodness, Jeez. we've just got to go. Wow. So what, what it came down to is also knowing that we probably would not be able to come back into the prison. So it was doubly loaded. For mm-hmm. the We'd been working quite intensively. We'd been doing like three or four days in there up to the end of July with the women and going, OK, we're, we're going to do this. We're going to, we're going to record this. It's going to be live and we're going to film it. We're going to do, it's going to be fantastic. And then it was like, OK, this is our day. These are our hours that we have and we may not come. We won't be here again. So it was like we can either get upset about this or we can just... We can just capture this. And the women were amazing, absolutely amazing. So that was that was a day and we left at about 7pm and, and um, yeah. So it's a one take? It, yeah, basically. Wow. Oh, we went through a few takes of some things, but some we just had to do one take of some scenes. That was it. Mm. Yeah, it was incredible. Gee, phenomenal. And, I mean, what was it like to sort of work in the podcast format, Kath? I mean, you, you, um, you've... So I know that you are a writer, you've become, you know, become a writer, but it isn't the same as writing for, for stage and the like. No, um, but my, I'm, I'm a, I write in blocks of – I'm not for fully written anything complete, so I just write in blocks of text and these guys put it into script. So, you know, I, I, I'm full of ideas and, can, and sharp wit sometimes a lot of it hindsight but still um and again it wasn't really to be directed by karen has i've been directed by karen for all throughout all the different years and times and shows that we've done that's what i was i was i was directed so i was sat in front of it it was different post-release stuff because i've never been filmed a lot before and Mm. we did a lot of filming of of me and Mm. so that was kind of hard yeah because i'm not completely comfortable with cameras on me at all. Anyway, but it was, yeah, it was basically the same sort of experience, just not as hardcore 
um, physically. Yeah. What yeah. about having that product that you can sort of listen back to and go back to, which is very different to live theatre? And some, you know, part of the thrill is live theatre is that it happens, you know, once maybe one night, one day. But with the podcast, you can go back, you can listen, you can, you can, you know, get a sense of how it all came together it and was think fantastic. about the way you, yeah. It was fantastic. I loved it. I loved it, and because uh, we've just finished the play, our play, and it was. It was just a radio version of the play, which was I thought was really, really clever. <laughs> and do you feel that you're able to connect with different new other audiences through your podcast format? Well, hopefully, and I think that's part of it too. We're thinking, well, how, you know, women who are locked up, locked away, I mean, are a very small and marginalised voice anyway. How do you get that voice out there if you can't do, you know, you can't do the things that you do? And we have been doing some, you know, small um, video sort of film clip sort of thing. And we thought, well, there's so many different cultures in this, which makes it so exciting. And I think that um, we're hopefully that people do get to listen. Mm. And it's a very different way of accessing, I think, the, the, the voices. And I think it's really lovely that you've got women who have lived experience, who've come through, who've been part of also, not just and the major part is the prison process, but also about the drama process, and they can reflect on some of the themes with their own, you know, their own take on things. And I think that's a, a bit different. So I hope it, 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 um, it can, um, you know, reach out to uh, mm. a wide audience. Yeah. Tell us about the actual story of this podcast. You know, what story does it tell? Oh, uh, it tells a story of, um, well, what I thought and thought about and wrote down was it tells a story of women before and why, before their jail sentences, you know. It's about um, what they, how they engage in prison, you know, the lighter side of it. And it is like a great big community because the women, when they get into... There's, no, there's not a lot of drugs in jail. There were, were never a lot of drug, drugs in jail. The media falsely reported so many incidents when I was in jail 16 years ago. And that's really scary for people on the outside. My mother was terrified and horrified, but it wasn't like that. It was like a... For me, it was a rehab because the only th- the thing that got me into jail was my addiction. Um, so that's a health problem. Mm. You know, I shouldn't have been locked up. I shouldn't have been um, taking my child ha- having to separate from me and not neither should those women... Um, fortunately, I did have a family to go back to. You know, I did, wasn't just left outside the gates with my bloody black garbage bags, which is what they do, and mm. then, you know, or back to an, an abusive relationship. I didn't have to do that. But while I was in there, many, many women died because they were let out and, um, and then weren't supported on the outside. These guys supported me and many others. So, uh, you know... Um, yeah, it's sad, mm. very sad. So that's why that podcast is very important. Absolutely. It's such yeah. an important story to tell for something that is sort of out of sight, out of mind for mm. so many people. And Unless we know it's that... on the front page, the Sun, Herald Sun. That's right. And yeah. and that's... in a way that's not helpful for people who are having that experience that's either. Because right. it's, it's untrue. Mm. A, lot of the, the, a lot of the reports are untrue. Mm. It just doesn't go down like that. Yeah. You would know that. And, and I mean, Kath, one thing that we are hearing reported and we, we know I think is true, there's a growing number of women going to prison. And as you just said, that um, people can end up in prison that shouldn't be there. Exactly. Yeah, I mean... There's a percentage of... Um, when, when I was in there 30 years or 16 years ago, it was the heroin crisis, you know, front page of the Herald Sun. They had it up against, you know... Um, how many people were killed on the road that year. Now it's an ice crisis. You know, nothing's changed. And the women, what are the women going in for? It'll be drug-related. You know, and that's a fact. Mm. Or they've got nowhere to live, you know, nothing to eat and nowhere to sleep. Yeah. And that's the story of many, many, many women mm. in prison. And I suppose the podcast format has been really well suited to telling the stories of, of you know women behind bars. If I'm um, not sure if you're familiar with the Bird's Eye View podcast of the women in Darwin Correctional Facility, and there's the 
an American version ear hustle, which is kind of, you know, um, reported and, and recorded from, from inside a correctional facility over there. So there's something about the format that lends itself to telling true stories honestly and giving people, a, you know, an in-depth insight into an experience they may not have had before and really importantly, encouraging empathy for, for people mm. as well. Um, do you imagine that you might sort of continue to work with the podcast format going forward or now that we're not in lockdown, hopefully we don't have any more, that's it, back to the live environment um, doing what you know. I think it's really a, quite a possible thing. I mean, we're learning and growing. I mean, my goodness, is amazing. Justin Holland and Sam Reed that work with us on this, uh, we're just trying to, you know, we, we went we sort of had to learn as we were going. It's a, it was a tricky one. It's tricky to sort of um, – but I think we really wanted to maintain the integrity of the fact that the, the play and the drama was there, which told the story in a way that really really did enable – it was – they're authentic stories, but they're characterised so the women mm. could feel safe in that and they could also show how – creative and and brilliant and you know great writers and singers and so on and so forth actors you know thinkers and thinkers and mm. i think that's a lovely way of actually being able to capture the voice in a way um so we i think we've got the combination right i think it would be terrific you know i think these the themes you've got you know you've got someone like Mat- it really does follow matilda's story and matilda is a uh, uh, um, uh, a Maori woman who is looking for her identity. That's where she starts, um, you know, searching, I guess, the search of where do I belong. And I think that connection, I think we all want to find where we belong. I think that's a very common thing. But I think her getting lost along the way is very much, uh, um, I think, uh, is the, the, the metaphor. And, of uh, course, she comes into a small community where... She could, you know, women wrap around her in a way. Um, nothing's perfect, but it is a, like a funny little community where people do connect and they do find a place of belonging and shared stories and, uh, and yeah, they find a place to feel where they're home for a while. And really it is a bit of a sad indictment if, if prison is the best we can do. I mean, before people hit the prison system there must be many many more things and also mm-hmm. upon release you know seriously we are one small little community mm-hmm. theater company there needs to be many 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 more options for people yeah 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 i mean you, you um mentioned that you're working with youth yes. as well and uh you you do have a production Coming up for that, maybe a quick shout out. Oh, I'm just looking at the time; we're going to run out of time oh, in our show. We'll but do that really quickly because another part us, of yeah. the, the company is a, an offshoot company called Nobody's Fool Theatre. So we've got Somebody's Daughter Theatre and Nobody's Fool Theatre, and we're we're based in Newtown near Geelong, and we've got a show called When the Light Went Walking, and it's on a cricket studio on the first and second of December. And if you go to our website, you could you could book through that, and that's a wonderful. And these are young people. People mm. that were actually involved just, uh, in the show that we did in yeah. Chapel Off Chapel. So there's a couple of young people that are involved and they're uh-huh. lead performers in that. It's a lovely story. Yeah. It's a lovely play. Fantastic. And in terms of the podcast itself, how can people best wrap their ears around it? Oh, well, that Spotify, Pod. Bean, I do all these things. <laughs> Apple, all, all, the, all the blah blah blahs, you know. Yeah, you can just search. <laughs> or you um, can go into our website too, but it's easier to all the main. Use apps. the platforms you might be uh, very yeah. familiar with. Miss, it appears we have hit some turbulence. If you put that into your favourite podcast platform, you will come across this fantastic new project from somebody's daughter theatre company and women who have spent time in the Dame Phyllis Frost Centre, a women's prison here in Victoria. We've been speaking with Karen Harper and Kath all about that project. It's been a Real delight having you both in the studio. Well done and thanks so much for coming in. Yeah, thank, thank you. Big thank congratulations you and please pass that on to everybody else involved. It's um, an amazing product. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Triple R's The Grapevine, a weekly current affairs radio show putting local issues in a global context. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Monday. Hope you enjoyed the show and if you have any feedback or would like to connect, hit us up via the Triple R website.